I'm Arthur Snell. A major war is taking place on the European continent with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, bringing you a series of special episodes to help you understand the crisis as it unfolds. This is Doomsday Watch. Welcome back to another Doomsday Watch War Bulletin. We want to start off by saying thank you for tuning in. Listeners like you are the bedrock of our work. If you're finding these war bulletins useful, you can support us by backing us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad-free, help us shape future episodes, and get exclusive merchandise, all from just £3 a month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the links in the show notes. Here at Doomsday Watch, we tend to focus on the geopolitical level as we try to explain this conflict in Ukraine. However, we want to give you a deep dive into the military situation in the ground. And to do that, back today by popular demand, we've got Mike Martin, military strategist, writer and expert on all matters relating to warfare. Mike, welcome. Hi, Arthur. How are you doing? I'm good. Mike, um, last time we spoke, we were talking about uh, the Russians' attempts to take Kiev. We were in a very different phase of this war. And now that bit of the Russians' uh, campaign has failed utterly and they're focusing their efforts in the east of Ukraine. Uh, so update the listeners. Where are we at with this war now? Mm. There was actually a phase in between that, actually, from when they were focusing on Kiev to focusing on the east. They went a couple of, for a few days, they were saying they were going to stitch up the whole of the southern coastline of Ukraine as well and join Donbass to Transnistria, but, th- but that plan failed as well. Yeah. Um, so where are we? Well, uh, the Russians are trying to take the whole of the Donbass under their control. Your listeners will remember in 2014, they sort of took some chunks out of that. Or rather, these, these local separatist militias, which are basically kind of local thugs that are supplied by Russia took took large bits of the Donbass. But what, what they want to do this time is, is take the whole of the two oblasts, which are like provinces, the Luhansk and Donetsk oblasts. They want to bring all of those under Russian control. And one assumes there'll be some sort of annexation or they'll become part of Russia or whatever, a bit like what happened with Crimea in 2014. So to achieve that, they pulled all of their forces out of Kyiv um that was a bit of a rout really actually the russians kind of got hammered uh as they were retreating retreating is really difficult to do um as a military and the idea was they might try and reconstitute some of those units put them together you know take three or four damaged units and build a fresh one out of it uh and then come around into the east and you know the ukrainians just wouldn't have a hope um really the russians had one chance which was to generate with this pull out from Kyiv, reconstitution, re-equipping of the forces, if they could get enough mass together in one go, they might have been able to punch through or create some kind of momentum uh, in the east. Instead of which, they seem to uh, extraordinarily, they seem to dribble them into the east. Which, well, one of the principles of uh, applying military force is concentration of effort. Um, and they did exactly the opposite. They dissipated their effort. And so what the Ukrainians did was they withdrew slowly um, in good order, but they used that manoeuvre, that withdrawal, um, and we're only talking of sort of a few single-figure kilometres here, but they used that to attrit 
the Russian forces. So the Russians were taking very, very, very heavy casualties for a small amount of territorial gain. And now what we've seen is probably about a week or 10 days ago, that, that Russian advance culminated. They'd run out of troops, forces, all the rest of it. And the Ukrainians began to counterattack. So the Russians went from the offensive to the defensive. And the Ukrainians went from the defensive to the offensive. And in some areas, say around Kharkiv, which is the, in the northeast, the second biggest city of Ukraine, the uh, Ukrainians have pushed the Russians back to the international border or just short of the international border. Um, and you know, last week, the mayor reported that for the first day in two months or whatever, three months, um, we're not being shelled anymore. And that's because the Ukrainians have pushed the Russian artillery forces out of artillery range. So uh, it's not over yet, but you know we're seeing many of the same mistakes that the Russians made. Um, they're pretty poor at logistics. We spoke about logistics last time. Um, this means that they're not really able to do big sweeping manoeuvres across terrain. I mean, the easiest way to deal with the, with the Ukrainians in the east is to just cut off their supply routes behind them, make some big, bold manoeuvre down from Kharkiv to Mariupol, yeah. and then entrap, you know, there's 60,000 Ukrainian troops there, just surround them in a pocket. That's That would be the way to defeat the Ukrainians in one go. But they can't do that. Their logistics are simply not good enough. Many of the same mistakes that the Russians made in Kyiv are being made in the east. Yeah. And that last point you were talking about there, I wanted to dig into a little because there was lots of talk of the risk that the Ukrainian, what they're calling the JFO, Joint Forces Operation, which is their kind of main army group there in the east, would be encircled by the Russians. And there were various maps with sort of scary arrows around the city of <laughs> Kramatorsk. But that didn't happen, did it? No, and it's actually, we've seen quite a lot of this sort of reporting in this war <clears throat> where people do a kind of big red scary arrow. Yeah. Um, the thing is, if you look at some of those distances to cut off the JFO in the east, the Russians might need to manoeuvre... I don't know, let's say 300 kilometers. I mean, it depends which route you take, right? Yeah. And then, of course, what you need to do is then look at what kind of roads are there. And the reason the roads are important is not because of your tanks, they can go anywhere. But, um, you know, an armored division requires, I mean, several thousand tons of ammunition and fuel per day to yeah. keep running. So you need roads that are able to take lorries with shipping containers on or tankers right because they weigh about 40 tons per shipping container or per tanker right there's very few roads that can do that even in a developed country like ukraine yeah. so very quickly when you look at the map and look at the distances involved and then you look at the logistics elements of the russian military that are deployed in ukraine you, you realize that that's an impossibility and it comes back to this kind of old adage doesn't it logistics win war yeah. and and you know the other thing uh, probably the two distinguishing features of this campaign one is logistics the other is morale mm. like russian morale is appalling and ukrainian morale is sky high i mean it's just I mean, if i was dreaming up the best info ops campaign information operations campaign yeah. i would write something like what the ukrainians have done i mean it's been amazing i mean they won the eurovision song contest right. with a guy broadcasting from a bunker last week yeah. 
I mean, yeah. you could not make this up. It's so good. And that song now, you know, the song that they won with, yeah. which, I mean, I don't know, you can you can form your own judgments whether you think it's good. That's now an anthem. Everyone's yeah. humming that in Ukraine. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So sky high morale on one side and, you know, defending their home turf and pretty convinced they're going to kick the Russians out on one side. And then on the other side of the Russians, sort of conscripts, poorly paid, poorly led, poorly equipped, getting killed. I mean, we haven't even spoken about Russian casualties. Maybe we will, like very, yeah. very steep Russian casualties. Um, it, there's really chalk and cheese between the two sides. Yeah, you sort of teed that up nicely there. There was a lot of reporting about a catastrophic Russian attempted river crossing, which was near um, Bilohorivka. But um, yeah, explain to us what was going on there. Why, why was this a big deal? Why did they lose so much, you know, both men? I think 500 men roughly were, were, were lost and dozens of tanks and armoured cars and so on. What was all that about? Well, there's this wider picture being created about Russian military competence. And things like bridge crossings are quite important. And the reason they're important is because they're quite difficult, right? Yeah. So there's certain man military manoeuvres that you need to do if you're an army, right? You need to advance, you need to retreat, you need to manoeuvre across ground, you need to flank, you need to cross rivers, etc. right? There's a whole bunch of these things to do. And, and you can basically rate these in terms of difficulty. So, for example, retreating is really difficult because you have to thin out your own logistics behind your lines so you, you can pass through them in retreat. Yeah. But if you thin out too many logistics, then you run out of fuel and ammunition and your forces get massacred. You know, yeah. so it's really subtle, for example. And a river crossing is exactly the same, right? You, you know, you need to <clears throat> put in flank protection up and downstream of where you want to cross. Yeah. You need to have reconnoitered the... Uh, the, the the bank that you want to cross to um, you need to establish a bridgehead across with a small team that hopefully you'll be able to do that secretly then you need to establish you know get your bridging elements up and get the actual bridge across and the main force yeah. and then once you've done that you've then got the breakout phase where you then you know move on to blah 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 blah. so you can see it's quite difficult it's quite yeah, intricate it's quite a lot of moving parts. yeah and that you know i really i've just painted the picture of that particular ground maneuver but of course arranged around that you'll have maybe air cover or yeah. what your divisional air assets are doing to protect you air defense assets and so on and so forth so there's this whole integrated military system arranged around this particular piece of ground maneuver and what happens well the ukrainians knew they were doing it so they hadn't deceived or camouflaged appropriately yeah. and then they were able to target it successfully and the russians weren't disciplined enough to get out of what was effectively a trap, right? And there's the other thing about, you know, river crossing is if you've been found and got targeted, you need a plan B quickly to get yeah, out of get dodge. Out of the way. Yeah. And look, this may, let's be honest, this, this sort of makes a nice little, in fact, it was indeed put into a nice little media package by the Ukrainians yeah. and offered up to the Western media because it paints this, you know, it keeps the Western supplies coming and all the rest of it. Right. Yeah. So, and that's fine. That's what I'd be doing if I were the Ukrainians, yeah. but it really in and of itself, it doesn't tell us anything except that it paints this wider picture of a, of a military that is nowhere near as good as everyone assumed it would be. So it's a bit like a sort of, a test that if, if any serious army should be able to carry out something like this, if in fact, when trying to carry it out, you lose all of your tanks and 500 men, it, it shows that you're really not, you know, you're not operating it. That means the level. entire battle group got knocked out. 
Yeah. Which means effectively, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm not obviously wasn't there and all the rest of it. Mm. But what that means is that pretty much that their command and control got knocked out immediately and everyone panicked and got massacred. And building on that, that specific incident to the wider point, it was at the beginning of this week that the British uh, Defence Intelligence judged that Russia may have lost a third of the invasion force that it sent into Ukraine. Now, to someone who's not from a military, what, what is the impact of, of that level of loss? I find it quite interesting that British Defence Intelligence cited that figure mm. because within the British Army, if a unit has taken one-third losses of personnel, yeah. um, it's said to be combat ineffective, i.e. Right. that unit is no longer able to prosecute combat and needs to be withdrawn. Yeah. And the reason the third is kind of that magic figure you know, as we just discussed with that example of crossing the river, the, one of the first things you want to hit is the command, the leadership, the communication systems of anything, right? Because they have a differential impact on cohesion of the units. So if you knock, knock them out first, then it's easier to knock out the other stuff later. Yeah. And so the reason the third is an important figure is because the assumption is that if you've taken out a third of a unit, you will have knocked out a much, much, much higher percentage of command control, leadership, and perhaps key assets like, I don't know, air defense or something like that. Now, that's at a kind of unit level scale, right? So I don't really know how that scales up into a whole force scenario like, like we're talking about here. Yeah. But they knocked out, well, how many Russian generals is it now? Nine or 10? I sort of lose count as to how many yeah, they've knocked it, out. So I think it's, yeah, up to 12 have been uh, killed. But um, we think of generals as sort of standing back from the front lines, directing uh, operations. So how is it that so many of them are vulnerable and, and have been, been got by the Ukrainians? Well, so if the Russians, if the Russian generals were sitting inside Russia in command posts, right, and, and I don't suppose there's any reason why they couldn't be doing that, because let's face it, in some places, the international border is not that far from where the fighting's occurring. And they probably wouldn't be targeted because hitting a fuel dump is one thing in Russia, but actually targeting a Russian military command post on Russian soil is, is probably, you might consider that another. Yeah. Um, but I think what's happening is actually these guys, these three, four star generals are having to push forward to, to get a grip of the situation and, and related to that, find out what the hell's going on. Right. Because yeah. in, in militaries, in all militaries, this happens, but it particularly happens in autocratic militaries, you know, the force is half wiped out and everyone's starving and they send the report upwards saying, yes, everything's going fine and we're advancing steadily. Right. And that obviously happens, you know, times 10 in an autocratic army. And the one thing that we do know is that Ukrainians have been very good at selecting which things to target, shooting down fighter planes. And, all that. and the reason they're able to do that is, of course, because they're being provided with really, really, really good electronic and signals intelligence from the West. Yeah. So that information is being fused with what is a really, really good social media uh, basically, all the civilians in uh, Ukraine, um, if they see a Russian formation, they take a photo of it, geolocate it, um, and then send it. So on Telegram, the Russian, the Ukrainian military has set up a bot that receives geolocated photos and descriptions from Ukrainian civilians. And obviously, they filter those to make sure that the Russians aren't spoofing it. But basically, they fuse that information with 
the top level, you know, electronic and signals intelligence from the West, and they get a really good picture of what assets are where. And so they're then able to prioritize what they're hitting, which is why they've taken out so many generals and so many logistics and all the rest of it, because they're very, very cleverly focusing on stuff that uh, impacts on the cohesion uh, of the Russian forces. And so let's apply that logic to this figure of one third. If, if they've taken out one third of personnel, a much higher percentage than one third of the command and control or the rare assets like air defense or yeah. important stuff like logistics will have been taken out. So I do wonder, is this, are we, is this, this tipping point? Are we seeing that actually perhaps the Russians have culminated at least for this phase of the operation and, and Donbass is not going to be solidified yeah. under there. I mean, for what it's worth, that's exactly what I think is happening. I think it is a tipping point and I think the Russians have culminated and I think that Donbass is now out of their reach. Let's turn our attention to Mariupol, where um, one you couldn't call it a victory because the Russians have basically flattened the city. Uh, but it does appear that, you know, that that part of the battle is over. Should we then expect that the Ukrainians will now be sort of turning their attention to retaking that southern coastline wh where the Russians have have actually managed to make some advance? Well, I think, again, we have to look at specifically what's happened in Mariupol. And again, it's no coincidence that it's come out at this time. Well, specifically what's happened is the fighters in Adostal yes. have surrendered or there's going to be some kind of prisoner swap, isn't there? Yes. So why is it that they've chosen this point in time to surrender when the Russians have just gone back? Well, that's because they've achieved their job. Those guys, the Ukrainians in the bunker in uh, Mariupol, their job was to tie up Russian forces, okay? Right. To tie up as many Russian forces as possible so that the Ukrainians in the east would have a better force ratio against the Russians. But now that, as we've discussed, it's going the other way in the east and the Ukrainians are on the advance, the Ukrainians in Mariupol can surrender now. They've done their job. Well done, guys. You are heroes. And we've, we'll do a prisoner swap and swap you. That all these things are connected and linked. Yeah. So to answer your question, what do we think is going to happen now? Well, you know, things like Mariupol are symbolic, but of limited, you know, if you're thinking in, kind of, in terms of strategy where your end goal is kicking the Russians out of Ukraine, yeah. you know, the sovereign territory of Ukraine pre-1914, Mariupol is not something that I would not be trying to get drawn into cities. That's what the Russians did, and that hasn't helped them. No. I would be thinking bigger and bolder. Effectively, what you need to do is cause bits of the Russian army to collapse in Ukraine. Because yeah. when that happens, then they'll just run away and leave their equipment and then you can retake that territory. And I've sort of been saying this for weeks, really, on my Twitter feed. But the Ukrainians need to think in big, bold terms about how to create that psychological collapse of the Russian army. And so you do that by spreading fear and panic and all that kind of stuff. So perhaps, you know, moderate partisan or special forces activity. You also want to do stuff like, I don't know, hit the, hit the bridge going into Crimea, big, yes. like sinking the Moskva, these sort of big moves that are symbolic and start to create momentum, strategic momentum, not tactical momentum, strategic momentum for Ukraine. And so Russian forces start to think, actually, we're not going to win this. And that's when 
you know, it's a conscript army. That's when people start to think, oh, I'm not risking my life for this. This is nonsense. Yeah, this isn't worth and so, it. Yeah. And so getting into a long, drawn out slog over Mariupol is not going to achieve that. That, in fact, helps Russia. Right. It's about big, bold maneuver and symbols that create fear and panic on the Russian side, eventually causing the collapse of the Russian armed forces. Right. So we're recording this um, as overnight in America. Um, unusually, uh, the, the American Congress managed to agree to something, which was another huge uh, aid package uh, to the Ukrainians. As, as you've described, um, they've got the momentum. Um, I guess there's a big question around Crimea. Do we think that the Ukrainians would would try to to move in on there? Because that that sort of feels like the ultimate objective in a way, but it but perhaps an objective that's a bridge too far to to use a cliche. Just, yes, excuse the pun. <laughs> yes. Um well, I mean, currently that's their stated objective, right? Yeah. Um, you know, the at the Russian annexation of 2014 is basically not recognized by anyone except Russia. Yep. Do I think it's a bridge too far? I think it depends on how you do it, right? You know, come back to this idea of like how difficult are different types of operations. Yeah. Probably the most difficult operations are amphibious operations. So, but that's not how you do it. I mean, how did Russia take Crimea? You know, they sort of popped up with little green men. And I think there's there's probably, you know, there are plenty of Russians who are in Crimea at the moment who are thinking, Okay, actually, let's get out of Crimea. This is not yes. going. This is not going to end well. There's that. I don't know whether it's true, but there's that thing floating around on Twitter of all the apartments that are being sold in Crimea currently, and which supposedly these are Russians. Yeah. So again, it comes to momentum. How much momentum do the Ukrainians need to create? With you know, inevitably, some attacks on Crimea. Is it blowing up the bridge? Is it? special forces operations is it sinking of russian ships with frogmen is it more missile stuff like i just don't think you know i don't see an amphibious operation to retake crimea happening but i do see other military activity that could force the defeat of 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 russians in crimea and then morale is the other thing right you know the ukrainians are going to have high morale and the russians are going to be thinking how do we get out of crimea yep. it's the russians cannot reinforce their naval presence in the black sea because turkey's closed off the bosphorus straits whereas ukraine potentially could they still hold several ports they could yeah. build ships or whatever you know so there are options um for ukraine to reinforce in the sea around crimea in a way that the russians don't have uh, so yeah, I, you know, I, I don't see it as without the balance of possibility that that the Ukrainians are able to take back Crimea. But I agree with your assessment; is that that's definitely the most difficult part. Yeah. So I guess then there's a question about what Russia does. They're obviously losing this war. So uh, you know, we come back to the kind of hoary old question of if cornered. Does President Putin and and his you know immediate team do they do they opt for something much more dramatic? Do they opt for the tactical nukes or or some other kind of uh, game changing tactic? Okay, the first thing is that there's no such thing as a tactical nuke. Okay, a nuclear weapon is a nuclear weapon. It's an immediately a strategic issue. Um, the second thing is, were Russia to use a nuclear weapon, I don't know, in Ukraine, for example. It's inconceivable that the NATO alliance, specifically the nuclear powers, the three nuclear powers within it, is inconceivable 
that that would be allowed to pass without a response. Yeah. And that response is going to result in Putin being removed from power yeah. because there's simply no way that Britain, France and America would allow a guy is sitting right next to Europe who's already used nuclear weapons to be allowed to remain in power. It's just inconceivable. Like, yeah. can you imagine the sort of Damocles hanging over Europe? Yeah. So what do we see? I mean, this is kind of broadly reflects what we saw in the Cold War, right? Where it was pretty clear that use of nuclear weapons was off the table because it's, you know, it's mutually short destruction or whatever you want to call it. But that's the end of it. Okay, it's changed now. And I think that that's been understood. I think that's understood in Moscow. There's lots of willy waving. But actually, now people just ignore Russia when they say, oh, if Finland and Sweden join NATO, there'll be dire consequences. Okay, all right, mate. Um, (laughs) And I think what we see, actually, is this kind of $30 billion that the US announced the other day in in aid to Ukraine, almost immediately after Russia said, if people keep supplying, you know, if the West keeps supplying Ukraine, we're going to see this as an issue, an escalatory issue, blah, blah, blah. You know, these are code words for, like, we're getting into the nuclear space. Yeah, clearly the Americans have realised that that's a bluff. You know, I think Western troops or Ukrainian troops on Russian soil. I think that's a slightly different ball game. I think yeah. then we could, you know, but actually, I think we found out what our threshold is. And if you look previously during the Cold War, we did this loads, right? Vietnam, yeah. Russians supplied loads in, yeah. in 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 Afghanistan. The Americans yeah. supplied billions of dollars of equipment to to the Mujahideen fighting the Soviets. We've done this loads in the Cold War, and it's never ended up in a nuclear war. So I, just, I don't think, you know, again, this is just like rabble rousing from the press, which I think the media has been incredibly poor quality, actually, in its coverage of this war. It's kind of a oh, World War Three, you know, we're going to sell some more newspapers. It's just rubbish. I think there's more of a question mark over chemical weapons because, yeah. you know, are they low, quote unquote lower thresholds? When there was a big kerfuffle about a month ago about where the, the you know they're going to use chem uh, yeah. chemical weapons or whatever, the response from America and other Western powers was that they sort of groped around a little bit to come up with the form of words, but eventually they settled on a form of words that was quite close to how they talk about nuclear weapons, which yes. was, it's a red line, it's a game changer, there will be a response. We're not going to detail what the response is now because it's important that we maintain some ambiguity around what our responses. But you need to understand that there will be a response in kind if you use chemical weapons. Yeah. Now, the West doesn't have any chemical weapons, so we can't respond exactly with chemical weapons. But it's like, this is really serious. We treat it really seriously and we will respond really seriously. And up until Ukraine... Putin was calling the West bluff every time and they didn't respond. But finally, the West has got its act together and cohered around the plan and is responding to Russia. So I think they've sort of seen that actually. Using chemical weapons is not going to help us win the war. And the response would be so overwhelming that actually we would lose the war if we use chemical weapons. We would be much more likely to lose the war even if we won the battle. Yeah. So I think what we're saying is that actually, like any party to a conflict, Russia can make big statements. But actually, if you look what they're doing, they're avoiding escalation. 
And, yeah, absolutely. And that that you could argue is is a fairly logical response. Yeah, yeah. To, to, to losing. A situation. <laughs> They've um, de-escalated. You know, they yeah. were going for regime change and denazification, and now they're talking about getting the. Luhansk and Donetsk oblasts right. within the Russian Federation. Yeah, which is quite quite a long way off the, the sort of original objective. Yeah. So I suppose then, uh, the final question, uh, does, does Putin survive this? No, not if he loses. I mean, Russian leaders don't generally tend to survive if they lose wars. And Putin owns this. Yeah. You know, he, he, you can see in that weird, like, Security Council meeting he had the night before the war. Yeah. And then you could see when he got all the oligarchs together and briefed them on the special yeah. military operation. He's on his own. Yeah. He's on his own. And, you, you know, the, the 9th of May victory parade speech where... There was no grandstanding there. That was just a kind of simple restatement of the narrative because, uh, you know, it's it's kind of pretty obvious that the war's not going forward. The, the question is, how far can we stop it going backwards? And I think this is where you come back to this idea about psychological collapse of the Russian armed forces. If that happens, then I think there'll be some sort of move on, on Putin within the power structures. Putin's whole thing is like, his whole grip on power, or his whole his narrative of power, rather, is I'm making Russia great again. Yeah, and he's literally done the opposite. He yeah. literally, Finland has joined NATO, applied to join NATO. Right. Yeah, that is something that didn't happen throughout the entire Cold War. Yeah, the West is unified in a way that it hasn't been for a long time. He's likely to suffer defeat in Ukraine. The armed forces have been absolutely mangled and mauled, and everyone's like looks at them and goes, "Okay, well, the Russian military are rubbish." Yep. If it wasn't for nukes. The Russian army would get rolled up by, you know, the Italian army could roll them up. Sorry, no offense to the Italians, like they're <laughs> marvelous at lots of. I love Italy, but they could roll up the Russians. I mean, it's just been appalling. Yep. Well. I think that's a brilliant place to stop whilst we uh, worry whether we've we've lost our Italian uh, listeners. But um, I love Italy. Damn, oh, damn. Um, Mike, thank you so much for joining us and for giving us a fascinating, wide-ranging update on uh, where this war has got to. Thanks, Arthur. We hope you find these war bulletins valuable amongst the huge amount of information out there. So don't forget to subscribe and help spread the word by rating us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or any other app that has ratings. And if you really like the show, you can support us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad free and help shape future episodes, all from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.